I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome, everyone. It's nice to see so many people here on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, as, as Laura said, I'm a, I'm a, a translator, and I, uh, my experience of being a translator, I suspect, is, is similar to Sean's and Mike's in that I spend quite a lot of time talking about being a translator and trying to explain what the job of a translator is and being on panels, um, such as, I mean, like a panel we had at this festival a couple of years ago. And at these events, we're always trying to explain using kind of abstractions what it is we do. We all, we're always talking about things like fidelity and register and voice and tone and cadence and all of these things, but in a very abstract way. And I think that when we have an audience, some of whom are not professional translators, it's actually quite hard for people to sort of get, get any purchase on a, on a subject like that. So today we're doing something which is slightly peculiar, uh, which is we're, we're looking at a single piece of text, uh, and we're going to be doing it um, in rigorous and possibly very tiresome detail. We're going to argue word by word and possibly comma by comma. There is one particular comma which I'm going to have quite a lot of fun <laughs> with. Um, so uh, this is what we're going to be doing. We, we have um, until about 12.30, a little over an hour. So we're going to be having a chat about this. Uh, I'll, I'll leave plenty of time at the end for you to ask questions, make comments, suggestions, uh, suggest alternatives, and so forth. What we've done, as you may have gathered from the, the, the handout you've received, is we've asked two translators to produce versions of the same text. What we hope this is going to do is, is demonstrate. Um, first of all, I think it'll tell us quite a lot about the original text, whose author is in the room with us, so we have to be nice. Um, <laughs> And I think it'll also tell us quite a lot about what it is that a translator does and give you the sense that a translation is, first of all, an act of, of, of creativity rather than an act which is simply a mechanical one. But also I think it'll give you the idea that a, a translation, that one translation is just one person's way of reading a text. Um, there are quite a few discrepancies between Sean's version and Mike's version. And what I hope will become clear in the conversation is not that one of them has got loads of mistakes and the other one is right. Um, though, of course, <laughs> I, I wouldn't possibly like to comment on that. Um, 
but, but the idea that actually what's happening is that there are two writers who are bringing their tools as writers of English to bear on a piece of uh, text which began life in another language. Um, so, without any more, any more talk from me, let me just very quickly introduce the people I'm, uh, I'm joined by here. Um, and I'll start at the far end with Daniel Kelman, um, who is a novelist who was born in Germany and brought up in Austria. Uh, his first novel, Behomsvorstellung, um, uh, where this passage was taken from, uh, was published in 1997. Um, he's got three novels translated into English, the first of which, Measuring the World, uh, which was shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. Uh, I read yesterday that it has, uh, is the best-selling novel in the German language for the last 25 years. Um, and according to our conversation at the hotel this morning, it's been translated uh, only 41 languages so far. <laughs> but this is because the Urdu one hasn't happened yet, but is, but is kind of poised. Um, 41 languages basically means that about half the translation profession of the world is basically engaged in translating this book. Um, that was a massive success, as it was followed by Mian uh, Kaminsky, also published in the UK, and Fame, which was longlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, uh, all of them uh, in English translations by a very brilliant translator, Carol Brown Janeway, uh, who we were saying earlier we hope is not in the room, because that would be weird. Um, <laughs> Uh, Daniel has also got a, a new play, which is going to be performed in the uh, autumn. Um, and he just finished adapting Measuring the World for a screenplay, which is 3D, is this right? It's going to be filmed in it 3D? It sounds weird, but it's right, yes. It's, and and, and cool. we think we're able to do something interesting with 3D, but we'll see. Well, before this film comes out, read Measuring the World. It's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, and then you can see the film in, in all its glorious dimensions. Um, <laughs> to Daniel's uh, immediate left is, is Mike Mitchell, who is a, uh, a one-time academic. He is a, an editor uh, with uh, Daedalus, a publisher, where he oversees the translated literature list, um, and himself a very experienced literary translator with uh, more than 50 uh, publications from German and French, uh, work by Goethe, by Kokoschka, by Herbert Rosendorfer, uh, five novels by Gustav Meyrink, Five mm -hmm. novels. Um, Myrink, uh, who, whose biography he's also written. Um, he's been shortlisted three times for the Oxford Weidenfeld Prize. He was shortlisted three times for the Schlegel Tieck Prize, translation from German, uh, which he's also won once. Um, he's the translator of Kafka's The Trial for OUP's World Classics and many other things, which I'm not going to list, even though I have a very long list in front of me. It's a very long list. Um, Sean Whiteside, to my immediate left, has also won the, the Schlegel Tieck Prize. Um, He's a translator from, I always have trouble remembering all these, from German, Italian, French, and Dutch. Just those four. Um, he, he's translated uh, contemporary writers like the Belgian writer Amelie Nothom and uh, Wu Ming. He's translated classic writers. Uh, he's translated Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, Musil, uh, Freud's Morning in Melancholia for the Penguin series. Um, his most recent, recent translations include uh, The Weekend by Bernhard Schlink, um, and The Solitude of Prime Numbers by Paolo Giordano. Um, as I say, he won the, the, the Schlegel Tieck Prize himself in 1996, and he's also a, a former chair of the Translators Association, so he has, uh, I think, like me, rather a lot of experience of representing the profession, um, as well as actually getting down to doing translation work. I'm going to stop talking now, um, and I'm going to ask Daniel to read us just the first paragraph of his story. Just maybe say a, a word about where it comes from, but the read us the first paragraph, and then we will, we'll get into the translations. Just to give you a quick uh, guided tour of your hymnals, um, 
you'll see what you have is on page three, you have the German text. You then have Mike's text, his translation. You then have Sean's translation. And if you jump forward to page 10, this is where we're going to be spending most of our morning, um, possibly at the very top of page 10. We may not get very far. Um, from page 10 onwards, you'll see we have the, the two translations broken sentence by sentence on facing pages um, for ease of, of uh, compare and contrast. Um, but let's go right back to the beginning. Uh, turn your attention to page three. Um, and I can ask Daniel just to, to say a, a word about where it comes from and then, and then let us hear the first, the first paragraph in, in German. I, I assume that most people here don't speak German. This is not a problem. I don't speak German either. So if it's, I mean, if I can cope, you can cope. Um, but we thought it's worth hearing what this sounds like anyway. Yeah, thank you. Daniel, good morning. It's wonderful to be here and to be part of such an uh, exciting uh, event and uh, it's such an interesting thing to do this. Yeah, uh, this is from a novel, my first novel actually, I, was, I published in uh, 1997. And uh, it's, uh, I, I don't think it needs much of an introduction, it's, it's a novel about a, a magician. Uh, it's the fictional autobiography of a magician. So the narrator of this uh, later in the novel will become a very famous, successful, and half-mad uh, magician himself. Magician, not in the sense of Harry Potter, in the sense of, 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 of conjure, conjurer. Um, but here, uh, this is from a, an early chapter where, as a, as a young man, as a student, uh, he goes to see the show of a, uh, of, a, of a magician called Jan van Rode of some kind of, um, well, who is very, uh, who, who is very famous and in, in, in big renown under insiders uh, of the art of conjuring and uh, he gives only very few um, shows and uh, the narrator is very nervous and very curious to see what's going to happen. Yeah, that's all. Thank you. Ah, and I'm supposed to read the first paragraph in German, sorry. Jan van Rode verzichtete auf eine Verbeugung, auf Grußworte, auf jede Förmlichkeit. Er griff mit leerer Hand in die Luft und hielt auf einmal ein Seidentuch darin. Das warf er mit einer nachlässigen Bewegung in die Höhe. Es breitete zwei bläuliche Flügel aus und flatterte eine Taube davon. Der Vogel zog einen, zwei, drei Kreise über unseren Köpfen. Plötzlich zerfiel er in eine Stichflamme und einen Regen silberner Funken. Van Rode drehte sich um und starrte einige Sekunden lang auf den leeren Boden neben sich. Nein, da stand ein Stuhl, ein unauffälliger Holzstuhl. Aber eben war er doch noch nicht... Oder? Ich rieb mir verwirrt die Augen und versuchte ein Husten zu unterdrücken. Da lief ein Zucken durch den Stuhl und er begann sich zu bewegen. Zuerst nur zaghaft, ein paar Zentimeter vorwärts und wieder zurück, schwerfällig und ängstlich, als ob das etwas Verbotenes wäre. Dann wurde er mutiger. Plötzlich sprang er in die Luft, kam krachend wieder auf und stand ein paar Sekunden lang unbeweglich da, erschrocken darüber, was er sich herausgenommen hatte. Doch dann rückte er langsam wieder auf Van Rode zu, der ihm amüsiert lächelnd die Hände in den Taschen zusah und fuhr schließlich in einer Kreisbewegung um ihn herum. 
und begann einen lautlosen, seltsam graziösen Tanz. Im Takt einer unhörbaren Musik sprang er hin und her, bäumte sich auf, drehte sich um seine Achse, verharrte einen Moment lang horchend und drehte sich in die andere Richtung. Und dann, auf einmal war ein zweiter Stuhl da und machte alle Bewegungen, drehen, springen, horchen, drehen, mit, aber um eine Winzigkeit langsamer, eine Spur ungeschickter und weniger geübt. Einmal kam er mit den Vorder- statt mit den Hinterbeinen auf und man spürte förmlich, wie er erschrak und die nächsten Figuren mit einer sanften Unsicherheit ausführte, im Zweifel, ob jemand etwas bemerkt hatte. Dann fand er den Rhythmus wieder und von da an machte er es ganz gut. Thank you very much. How many people here do speak German, out of curiosity? Oh, my word. <laughs> so was that any good? <laughs> um, thank you. Gosh. Well, this is much more frightening for the translators. It makes no difference to me at all. <laughs> good. Well, have fun. Uh, and in the red corner. Um, I should just mention that uh, Mike and Sean have not seen one another's translations until uh, we walked in the room just now. Uh, they don't know how, uh, they didn't know until just a moment ago, and I, there was some glancing, I think, just now, some <laughs> surreptitious, you know, in, in one of those kind of, you may now turn over your exam papers ways, you have kind of glancing at what's happening. Um, so this is going to be the first time they hear what, what each other has produced. Um, I think we should actually listen to the whole of that paragraph uh, in each of the two versions. So, um, and you can, you can listen out for differences or not, as you like. Mike, will you read us the, the, the first, your whole first Try paragraph, on, please? Which is on page five. Right. <clears throat> Without bothering with a bow or a good evening, ladies and gentlemen, Jan van Roder went straight into his act. He held out his empty hand and all at once there was a silk scarf in it. He threw it up with a casual gesture. It spread two bluish wings and fluttered away, a dove. The bird flew round our head round over our heads once twice, three times. Suddenly it disintegrated in a spurt of flame and a shower of silver sparks. Van Roder turned round and for a few moments stared at the empty floor beside him. No, there was a chair there, an unremarkable wooden chair. But it hadn't been there a moment ago, or had it? I rubbed my eyes in bewilderment and tried to suppress a cough. The chair twitched and it started to move, at first just tentatively, a few inches forward, then back again, ponderous and timid, as if that were forbidden. Then it became more daring. Suddenly it leapt up in the air, landed with a crash and stood motionless for a few seconds, alarmed at its own boldness. But then it started slowly shuffling back towards Van Roda, who watched it with an amused smile, hands in his pockets, and eventually circled round him, thus beginning a silent, oddly graceful dance. In time to inaudible music, it skipped to and fro, reared up, span round on its axis, paused for a moment, listening, and span round in the other direction. And then, all at once, another chair was there, following its every movement, spinning, skipping, listening, spinning, only a tiny bit slower, a touch clumsier and less practised. Once it rose up on its front instead of its back legs and you could positively feel its horrified reaction and see the way it executed the following steps with restrained uncertainty, 
wondering if anybody had noticed. But then it caught up with the rhythm again and from that point on performed it pretty well. Thank you very much. Sean. Jan van Roede made no bow, is that okay? Bow or greeting or formal gesture of any kind. He reached a hand into the air and in it he was suddenly holding a silk cloth. With a careless movement, he threw it up in the air and it spread two bluish wings and flapped a dove away. The bird circled once, twice above our heads and suddenly disintegrated into a jet of flame and a shower of silver sparks. Van Rode turned round and stared for a few seconds at the empty ground beside him. No, there was a chair there, an ordinary wooden chair, but it wasn't quite, or was it? Confused, I rubbed my eyes and tried to suppress a cough. Then a twitch ran through the chair. It started moving. Hesitantly at first, a few inches forwards and back again, clumsily and nervously, as if doing something forbidden. Then it grew bolder. All of a sudden, it leapt into the air, landed again with a crash, and stood there motionless for a few seconds, startled by its own temerity. But then it edged back towards Van Roder, who watched it with an amused smile, hands in his pockets, and finally moved around him in a circle before beginning a silent, oddly graceful dance. To the beat of some inaudible music, it jumped back and forth, reared up, span on its axis, paused to listen for a moment, and then span in the other direction. And then, suddenly, a second chair was there, joining in with all the movements, spinning, jumping, listening, spinning, but a fraction more slowly, a touch more clumsily, and less adeptly. Once it landed on its front rather than its back legs, and you could actually sense it giving a start and performing the next few figures with meek uncertainty, unsure whether anyone had noticed anything. After that, it found its rhythm again, and from that point on, it did quite well. Thank you very much. Um, those of you who were following in the parallel text would have noticed that of the 16 or 17 sentences in that paragraph, uh, the number which the two translators produced uh, identical versions for was exactly zero. Uh, there is not one sentence which is the same in the two of those versions. Um, as I say, we're going to just start at the beginning uh, and go word by word and see how much you can take. Uh, some of us do this all the time, so frankly, you know. Um, let's listen to that first sentence again. Can we have the first sentence, Daniel, in German, and then the two versions? Jan van Rode verzichtete auf eine... Auf, Entschuldigung. Jan van Rode verzichtete auf eine Verbeugung, auf Grußworte, auf jede Förmlichkeit. Thank you. Mike. Without bothering with a bow or a good evening, ladies and gentlemen, Jan van Rode went straight into his act. Jan van Rode made no bow or greeting or formal gesture of any kind. Strikingly similar, strikingly different. The first thing which you might notice is that there is a typo in the German. Uh, the, second, the second word is spelt wrongly, which I noticed that both of the translators uh, assumed was a typo and corrected themselves. Um, Jan von Rode, as, he, as we call him for some reason, just this once. Um, the most striking difference, I think, first of all in this first sentence is, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I, I didn't, I mean, the, the German Begrüßungsworte uh, uh, is... Um, 
we have one copy of the book to go around. So, yeah. uh, I mean, words of greeting or words of welcome. I didn't like that in English. I didn't think so that, I mean, I see that John didn't use it exactly. Um, and I just thought putting what he would have said but didn't say was the way of getting around it. I mean, I sometimes, I don't know whether this is a kind of English um, sort of self-image that we're more concrete, more uh, precise about things, you know, more concrete about things than other languages, particularly German, but uh, I sometimes do something like that. And um, the, the Firmlichkeit just didn't seem right for, I mean, in, in a way also, Begrüßung's um, words of welcome, I thought would be an MC rather than the um, conjurer himself. And the same formalities is not something I would associate with a performer on a stage. So again, I just said he, he went, I thought, what would I say if I was writing this? And I just said, he went straight into his act, which is mm. a, a way out of the problem, I suppose, or around mm. it. Sean, did you, did you wrestle with the sentence at all? I did a lot. Um, I had several versions, and in the end I thought, because um, Verzichten, for me, has a, a slightly formal echo to it. It has a slightly formal tone. He which which one is the refrained from? He refrained from bowing more. Dispensed formalities. And I actually made a decision, because we have this, we've only got this extract from the book, I decided to go straight into the act without any preliminaries. Mm. And I think if I'd been translating it actually within context, I would have gone into it more gently. I would have dispensed with or refrained with formalities and greetings and maybe come up even on a good day come up with Mike's um, very good idea of having a good evening ladies and gentlemen thank you how much did you know about the context of this or did you I mean this is always going to be a slightly uh, peculiar exercise because translators are being asked to do a, a very little piece of text out of context um, does that make it uh, harder Mike I mean is that is that does that make it a stranger process well uh, yeah, I had no idea whether it was from a novel or whether it was just an independent piece. Um, I think we were talking about it in general before we knew what we'd <laughs> written. I think we both agreed that translating short passages, short pieces anyway, is more difficult because you don't have time to get into it, to get the feel of what the English equivalent is. Uh, and that was something I was aware of here. But then that, that goes with this kind of exercise, I would say. If you have a phrase like "Good evening, ladies and gentlemen," which is a, an, un, an unpacking of, a, of a, a, the original word, and you have this little "it went straight into his act" as a way of, of, of leading out of the mm -hmm. sentence, this is a very vague and impossible question to answer. But how do you know how far you can go? What, because presumably, what you cannot do is say, actually, this one is quite difficult. I'm going to start with the second sentence. Um, yeah, well, or you can't say, Jan van Roda made a great greeting and bowed and welcomed everyone in a yes. formal way. So how do you know how much you can... Uh, or, or do you just kind of sort of know it when you see it? Well, I suppose the easy way to say is that once you've done 20 or 30 pages of a novel, you begin to you feel it. Hmm. I, I think that's slightly way out of answering your question <laughs> directly. But... You have to make, weigh them up. I mean, you, you, often you think about these things in the abstract, but then you weigh them up and you have... You, I think it's one of the 
privileges of a translator, but also one of the responsibilities, is to make that kind of decision. So mm. you have to, and then stick by your decision or say sorry to the author. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask the author. It's, it's kind of like, how many people here have seen Annie Hall? There is that moment in Annie Hall where Woody Allen and Diane Keaton are standing in the queue of a cinema and they, there's some very pretentious guy in the queue complaining, saying something ludicrous about the movie they've just, they're, they're going to see. And Woody Allen says, actually, you're talking nonsense. I happen to have the director right here. And he pulls the director into shot and says, and the man says, you know nothing about my movies. Um, and Woody Allen says, if it's only life It's actually Marshall like McLuhan. It's Marshall McLuhan. It's Marshall McLuhan. That's absolutely right. It's Marshall McLuhan. Well, we ha I'm delighted to say we have Marshall McLuhan here with us today. Um, so we, we have this slightly strange privilege of being able to ask the author. So actually, yes, we're, we're arguing about this, but what do you think? Um, you work very closely with Carol on the mm. translations of mm. your books. So is there sometimes a kind of tension between um, how far away she wants to, to pull from the text? And, uh, and do, you, do you find yourself protecting it, or, or do you feel... Not really, no. That's, that's not something that happens. Uh, what's happening is in... in, uh, in uh, Carol does a... Uh, does a draft of her translation and then I read it uh, and I read it with, with with some time and concentration and um, and I often find or not often of course but sometimes I find things where I feel she hasn't quite got what I wanted to say but it's all it's not about it's not about uh, not so much about stylistical nuances it's often just about um, about the right understanding. If, 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 if there's more than one way a sentence can be understood, or also if sometimes, that was, especially in, in measuring the world, I used a lot of um, arcane 18th century uh, terminology uh, where she just, where just in, in, in some instances I had to say, this is not what I want to say, I want to say something else. Um, uh, for, as for I know how important it is for literary translation to protect the voice of the, the, the writer. And it's actually the most important thing, uh, I think. Uh, you can have a lot of um, mistakes, uh, which of course shouldn't happen, but it can happen. You can have a lot of mistakes, but if you get the, the voice right and the tone and, and maybe the humor, that's much more important than, than, uh, than being flawless but dull. Mm -hmm. or, uh, or just turning it to something else. And um, there I have complete um, faith in Carol. It's not just faith, also with, uh, as far as I can understand uh, English, I think she captures my voice uh, wonderfully well. But it's also about faith because uh, I think the only person who would be able to really, um, who's able to really judge that is a native speaker. And I would, have to be either a native speaker or a genius like like Nabokov uh, to really know about uh, all the nuances uh, um, of, of a translation. And uh, I'm obviously not. So um, so that also makes me kind of, I'm not much McLuhan in this, uh, in this uh, case because uh, in, 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 in any hall, this uh, terrible guy in, in standing in line behind him is actually talking about Marshall McLuhan and then Marshall, what, what, what Marshall McLuhan says, saying to him is, um, you got all my theories completely wrong. It's amazing how you can teach at a university. <laughs> um, but um, I couldn't say that because 
I'm not Marshall McLuhan in this case because uh, I'm not an English native speaker. So uh, I, I am not able to judge the fine nuances of, of the English language. I would love to be, but I'm not. But you read her complete text of each of the novels. Yes, I did, I did. I read it, I, I read the complete, uh, and, and that actually, that was the condition on which she started to translate me. She wrote to me, she, uh, because Carol is, uh, is also my, my, my publisher and my, my editor in, in, in America. She's, uh, uh, she's my editor at, at, at Knopf. She's also uh, executive vice president of, of, of the company, and she does translating as a recreation in, in, in summertime. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, she asked me, she told me she would take on Measuring the World, but only if I am available for questions and if I would be ready to read the text and then sit down with her and uh, work on it with her. <coughs> if I would not be able to or not want to do that, she would completely understand, but she would not translate it. She would assign it to somebody else. And I said, no, I'd love to. And uh, that's how we how we started to collaborate. Well, that sounds very happy. <laughs> it is. Um, it is. You will have noticed that Daniel's English is extremely good, and for someone with English that good to have the the humility to say I couldn't possibly judge the nuances of the of the uh, English text uh, is a humility which is not found in as many writers as one might <laughs> like. <laughs> anyone anyone recognise this? And, and translators in the room. Um, I think we can possibly make our way onto the second sentence, <laughs> having done 12 words now, um, which in the lucrative business of literary translation means that between us we've earned about a pound, uh, split between the, the 86 of us, by the way. Um, let's hear the second sentence uh, in, in German first, please. Er griff mit leerer Hand in die Luft und hielt auf einmal ein Seidentuch darin. Mike? He, he held out his empty hand and all at once there was a silk scarf in it. Sean? He reached a hand into the air and in it he was suddenly holding a silk cloth. Okay, we have a, we have a hand and we have an empty hand. We have a... What's the difference between a silk scarf and a silk cloth? Cloth isn't as good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did... I did Cross that one out. <laughs> yeah. I must admit, I thought, tuch, cloth, no. No, you were quite right. So, it need, again, a bit like the first sentence, I felt it needed to be more specific, but also thought, thinking of conjurers... What would you call it as a, with a flourish? Yeah. Um, that's kind of thought. There's also a difference in, the, in the, 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 the structure of the sentence and a difference between... There was a, he had his hand out, and there was a scarf in it. That's different from he was holding... Yeah, that's also, if, 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 if I could say something to that, because I just thought, actually, the, the German sentence could be better, because... Um, <laughs> no, but that's also something interesting, because you said, at the beginning, you said we have to be nice because the author is here. <laughs> and in a way, in an exercise like this, you always have to pretend that the original text is something it's like it's biblical, sacred, yeah. perfect, and sacred. Well. But I just thought this good. last word, the darin, I, I, this, I could cut this and the sentence would work better. So uh, in a way, uh, when, when, when Mike preserved the in it, he was, of course, uh, faithful to, to the German text. But I would, I would cut the in it 
or I or I would holding a silk cloth would work better in German. So uh, I would I would throw out the. <laughs> do, you, do you welcome translators writing to you and saying, actually, if we kind of didn't do this bit, if we just missed this bit out, it would, it would be a bit better? They never say that. Yeah. They think, they, no, they, they expect writers to be extremely neurotic and extremely angry. So <laughs> if, if, if they say something like that. But anyway, even <laughs> if you think it's an improvement, I think you say to the author, I think this works better in English. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Far be it for me, exactly. of course, to comment on that. <laughs> Uh, but what, what, what happens to me often is uh, that translators uh, uh, write to me um, uh, about a sentence where they ask me, what, what do you exactly mean by it? It's a little bit difficult for me to understand because the way you phrase it, but then I'm... Uh, so they just don't quite understand why a sentence is phrased in a certain way. And it sometimes happens, I can't say it happens all the time, that would be weird now, but it sometimes happens that I look at the sentence and I say, yeah, you're right, it's just not good. <laughs> it's, I didn't pay that much attention, I should have paid, and I should change that, and the reason why you're kind of confused is because um, it's stylistically really not perfect, and it mm. should be. So, uh, but um, the, the, the translators never, never start the conversation with this. <laughs> it's, I mean, we, we often say that translators are the best or the closest readers of a text. Yeah. And, and I'm presuming that the, the sort of exercise we're doing now where we are simply looking you know, line by line is actually in some ways a much more rigorous thing than you do when you're writing, that you don't actually deliberately stop at every line and argue with yourself about it before you go on to the next line. In, in a way, maybe that's what you should do, but then all the flow would mm. get lost. So, um, no, you don't do that, yeah. Well, I'm assuming this is true about the translators as well, that you don't, maybe I'm wrong. Do, do either of you actually think about very, very sort of detailed questions of whether it should be this word or that word in a very conscious way? I mean, do you spend a lot of time looking at a sentence and trying to get it right and not going on to the next one until you've got the first one right? Or do you just, you just um, kind of let it happen? And I try to get each sentence to make a decision on it. And, and sometimes you go through and you try and you switch it round. Does it work that way? Does it work this way? Look up lots of different words. But then... I generally have some system whereby I say, at the end of each paragraph, I'll read through the whole paragraph as fluently as I can, or maybe each page, mm -hmm. so that I then want to get a sense of the flowing nature mm -hmm. of it, as well as you know, the nuts and bolts of each sentence. I think you have to do both. Mm -hmm. I think it's not the individual sentence, because it's where it is in the paragraph, I think, yeah. as well, because the flow changes. Yeah. If you change the sentences on either side, mm -hmm. you have to go back to the one you in the middle and change and read, the rhythm read, of that Read, as read well. them in the context, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talking about flow, let's read the third sentence, because there's one particular thing I'm going to ask about that. Um, sentence number three. Uh, Daniel, yeah, yeah, sorry. Das warf er mit einer nachlässigen Bewegung in die Höhe, Es breitete zwei bläuliche Flügel aus und flatterte eine Taube davon. Mike. He threw it up with a casual gesture. It spread two bluish wings and fluttered away, a dove. With a careless movement, he threw it up in the air and it spread two bluish wings 
and slapped, I've got a dove away. The, the shape of that sentence, the rhythm of that sentence, is completely different in the two translations. Uh, the one of the striking things is the word and in Sean's. Okay. Um, Mike, can you read yours but replace the semicolon with an and? He threw it up with a casual gesture <coughs> and it spread two blue, bluish wings and fluttered away. I mean, you get, mm -hmm. I don't like two ands. <laughs> mm. um, so, uh, Sean, also, in sorry. the context of this paragraph, actually, later on, um, the German is quite often split up into quite mm -hmm. short units as sentences or with... And I wondered, should I stick to that? Could I make it slightly more flowing in places? Um, and I think I've done both. <laughs> yeah. um, but here... Um, the sentence is syntactically a bit weird in German too, I, uh, but here I, th here I'm, I really stand by that because uh, it is unflatterte eine Taube davon. Mm -hmm. Here the, the, the dove is kind of injected into the sentence mm -hmm. because it's 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 kind of it goes against the the, the rhythm of the mm -hmm. sentence because mm -hmm. it's a, it so it's a surprise there. in the grammar yes. as in the the dove just in appears the, in yeah. this sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in in that context, I. I was very tempted to write, he, with a careless movement, he threw it up into the air, and a dove, it spread two wings, and a dove fluttered away, and then I did, that was really going too far. Mm. Um, but I did the broken mm. off bit mm. at the end rather mm. than in the middle. So, Sean, yours is closer mm. in terms of that last bit of the sentence, in yes. terms of the shape of it. Will you read it again, the whole sentence? Can I change my flat to fluttered? <laughs> what's the difference yeah. between what's the difference between flapping and fluttering? Um, I well, given that it's not a vulture, for example, <laughs> reading it again, and fluttered a vulture away. <laughs> um, and I was also wondering about, um, given that it had bluish wings, whether it should actually be a dove. Did you mm. have that well, concern? I I tried lots of. I didn't like bluish as a word very okay. much, but I any you know blue tinged or I didn't really like that. I did wonder about pigeon, actually. <laughs> uh, but then I thought conjurers surely have dogs, exactly. so they're rather more elegant. Than but they tend to be white rather than bluish. Uh, yeah, yeah. Traditionally. What's quite Sorry. interesting is, I, 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 uh, as mm. I tend to do on these occasions, I ran the whole text through Babelfish, which is an online <laughs> translator, which is one of the <laughs> funniest things in the world. Um, I may read you a little bit of it later because it's... Uh, it's not very good. Um, but one of the things it does is, for example, it does actually use the word pigeon rather than the word dove. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not wrong, because Tauber is the word Tauber? It's the same word in, in, in German for yeah. both a dove and a pigeon. What Babelfish doesn't have is a kind of cultural sense of yeah. what conjurers mm -hmm. tend to mm -hmm. use. Yeah. What the, what, the, what, what the translator, the, the live you know, human flesh and bone translators were, were, were doing, which people which can't do, is go, well, it can be a pigeon or a dove. Actually, I have a very good reason. I have a kind of cultural sense of why you would do one rather than the other, because actually I've seen some conjurers and none of them use pigeons, um, <laughs> vultures, anything else. It's always, always a dove. Um, would, you, would you read it again, Sean? With a careless movement, he threw it up in the air, and it spread two bluish wings and flapped a dove away. Thank you. Now, the reason I put that and in is that very often, um, possibly not in this instance, but very often with German books, a comma 
or a semicolon is used where we would use a conjunction. I'm not sure yeah, this holds for this particular sentence yeah. so much because there are two ands. Yeah. Um, but I wanted it to flow on. It's, some, it's something which break it with yeah. the dove mm. until you get the break. The dashes. It's something which you'll see in quite a few places later on that the, the translators will actually uh, entirely repunctuate or remove punctuation, add conjunctions, or indeed run sentences along um, on, onto one another. Um, sentence number four. Dear it's, a, it's almost ten to twelve. Sorry, then. Der Vogel zog einen, zwei, drei Kreise über unseren Köpfen. Plötzlich zerfiel er in eine Stichflamme und einen regensilberner Funken. Thank you, Mike. The bird circled once, twice, round our heads and suddenly disintegrated into... Oh, sorry. That's mine. You have to mine. I'm going cross-eyed. They are not interchangeable. <laughs> The bird, point. the bird flew round our heads once, twice, three times. Suddenly it disintegrated in a spurt of flame and a shower of silver sparks. I've done the end again. The bird circled once, twice above our heads and suddenly disintegrated into a jet of flame and a shower of silver sparks. I did have a question for Daniel here. Mm -hmm. um, that it disintegrating and, and the jet or spurt of flame was, was quite difficult. What did it strike me thinking about it was, you imagine a Stichflammer, mm -hmm. something that mm -hmm. goes up in the air, but Zerfallen in German contains the idea of falling, even though it means disintegrate. I just wonder if that yeah. struck you at all? It's a good question, of course. I think, I mean, I wrote this uh, <laughs> quite a while ago, uh, but uh, if, I, if I try to remember what I was thinking, no. No. Uh, it's, uh, well, I just wanted to Does get this, I just wanted to get this picture of, of course, you're right, the flame goes up, but the, 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 uh, the, the shower what's the word, the flower, the, the, the shower of sparks come down, so, but the bird, but maybe, maybe it's not the best word to use at this point, well, yeah, maybe, no, no, but, but I, I'm, I, I, I mean, the, 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 the natural thing, in, also in German, would be something like explodes, but that, I, I think that was too big. Yeah. So I wanted yeah. something not, so, not, not too spectacular yeah, here. Go into bits. So yeah. like, yeah, like the bird is going into bits, yeah. yeah. So um, no, I'm, 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 I'm really, I don't feel 100% comfortable about Zafil here, but right now I, don't, I, I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have something better to replace it with. Happens to translate a <laughs> lot as well. <laughs> Mike, did you think about different verbs for Tefalin? Uh, you ended up, you both used disintegrated. I don't think I anything apart right. from disintegrated, which... Did you have it blowing apart at any point? Or well, <laughs> as Daniel said, with explodieren, that yes. something occurred to me, but it seemed much too violent. Mm. I think I really wanted it, because if, if, if now I think, I come to think of it, because I really felt like it should be like this, these completely different elements, the spark and the flame, mm -hmm. like it somehow it was what made up the bird. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what you feel. I, I, I wanted this picture of the, of, of really, yeah, of the bird coming to pieces. Mm -hmm. So well, um, yeah. it's, well, the it's um, yeah. so yeah, I'm, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> but, but I think, I think it works, but I'm, 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 
I'm not sure, maybe if the editor would have phrased the question then, maybe I would have, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think that was. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One of the things when you do with translating is you you visualize things yeah, yeah. in order to get it. And I was visualizing this yeah. thing going up and I was thinking cephalon is going down and that's what set mm. me off on that but mm. I mean, it's just the way translators minds work and yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have uh, in the sentence we have the same thing again we have an, an and in one and, and not in the other just so, that, so they have a slightly yeah. different they have a different flow to them we have a different number of times the bird flies around his head which is oh, interesting yeah. um, we also have, uh, as you both went for a shower of silver sparks. The word for shower, um, I've lost it now. Regen. Regen, which is rain, I presume. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. You both, did you at any point uh, consider using the word rain, and if not, why not? I say this because, of course, Babelfish, bless it, um, <laughs> disintegrated into a flash and a rain of silver sparks. It's quite nice. <laughs> no, it's I not the Reagan right thing to rain. say at all. <laughs> no, sparks are in a shower. Okay, I, I, just, okay. I all immediately decided against rain. Why not make it strange? Because it is quite strange. Well, I suppose there's that possibly. Yes. We both had shower anyway. Yeah. So. Sean, why don't you read right. yours with the word rain instead of word? <laughs> See how it sounds. Um, the birds circled once, twice above our heads and suddenly disintegrated into a jet of flame and a rain of silver sparks. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Flame and rain, you almost get a, yes, an you echo get a, when you... You get mm. a, a rhyme. But, yeah. but, why do you not, but why do you not have the, the three times? Is it, is it too I'd much? Like, I'd like to say because it was far too many times. I thought twice was enough. Um, <laughs> well, you get once, but twice. really. Because I thought three times three is kind times of is a right magical right. number. <laughs> it's a magic and show. It is a magic show. You can't really right. say thrice in English. No, no, it's, it's, no uh, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, disintegrating the jet of flame and a rain of silver sparks uh, doesn't work. One of the reasons, as Mike pointed out, is you have f flame and rain, which sound strange together. Uh, do you always, always read things aloud? Because that's the kind of thing which you wouldn't notice, I think, uh, just with the text on the page. Sean, do you, do you, did you read this aloud from beginning to end? <coughs> Not all of it, no. Um, no, when, when one has time, it is, uh, ideally, you do, mm -hmm. um, because I do, I do think it makes a lot of difference. Um, and you do then spot halting rhythms and unexpected mm -hmm. rhymes mm -hmm. and collisions of consonants as well, which are going to make it difficult for somebody to read. So in the ideal situation, yes, we mm -hmm. would. I, I 
translated a book a few months ago where, uh, which I had no intention of reading out loud because it was extremely long. And fortunately, one bit I did because there was a bit in the, one of the characters who's a seamstress goes to a shop and she buys uh, satin. And it's got this kind of a, a patterned fabric, and she buys it by the by the span, and she buys seven of these. And I only realised when I read it aloud that she bought seven spans of patterned satin, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which which looked it looked very very nice on the page. And I then read this. I actually read this to somebody and kind of went, "Excuse me, I'm just <laughs> um, seven spans of patterned satin." <laughs> Uh, in the next sentence, one of the differences we have between the two, uh, Van Roder turned round. Uh, Mike, you have something happening. Uh, he, he's looking at the empty floor. Sean, he's looking at the empty ground. Yes. What's the difference between the ground and the floor? The ground would normally be outside, Dan. Yeah. Um, uh, so where are we here? We were on a stage, mm -hmm. which would have a floor, Dan, doing the acting. <laughs> okay, good. But <laughs> Uh, well, that was easy. Um, next sentence. That's something which I thought about in your thing of hearing it. I mean, there was a chair there. I mean, I, I did mm -hmm. wonder, could I put that because of the echoes? But decided that because of the different emphasis on the words when you read it, it, worked. it was okay. Read, read the whole sentence, Mike. What? No, there was a chair there. Sean. No. There was a chair there. <laughs> Very helpfully demonstrating the punctuation <laughs> gives you a slightly bigger pause. Uh, I didn't actually brief him, but that's, I so hoped he would do that. Um, how, how deliberate is that, then? That, that, that it's the only difference between these two sentences is the punctuation. Um, but it does completely reshape it, doesn't it? Let's see what happens in the... Uh, the... the the original has a comma, so Sean, you're the one who, who chose to. Yes, I wanted to go for abruptness and suddenness. Mm -hmm. um, because no, the, with the comma, it was as if the audience hadn't noticed that there was a chair there mm -hmm. before. Yes, um, you're, so in, you're in the, his mind. Yes, yeah. so I, oh. I, I added that to, um, to make it sudden, mm. to make it abrupt. Um, I was trying to think of what we should, we're going to have to jump through quite a lot of this, uh, unless you're planning to stay here all day. Um, let's move on to top of page 12. You'll gather that we could actually just... Yeah, hours, hours and hours, but we're not going to. Top of page 12. Um, Mike, will you read that first uh, long sentence at the top? But then it started slowly shuffling back towards Van Roder, who watched it with an amused smile, hands in his pocket, and eventually circled round him, thus beginning a silent, oddly graceful dance. In time to inaudible music, it skipped to and fro, reared up, span round its axis, paused for a moment, listening, and span round in the other direction. Sean, the first, in your version, it's two sentences. Yes. But then it edged back towards Van Rude, who watched it with an amused smile, hands in his pockets, 
and finally should be a dash, and finally moved around him in a circle before beginning a silent, oddly graceful dance. To the beat of some inaudible music, it jumped back and forth, reared up, span on its axis, paused to listen for a moment, and then span in the other direction. Am I right in thinking there is a difference of, uh, at least an implied difference of some kind between moving around someone in a circle and circling them? As, as, I, as I see it, moving around them in a circle is simply to do with actually where you are. And circling someone does suggest something possibly more, I don't know, menacing? Well, <clears throat> I can ask Daniel this. In this section, I was wondering if the chair was being slightly humanised, mm -hmm. or animalised, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I put shuffled rather than edged, yes. and one or two of other words, um, you know, tentatively, hesitantly, seem to suggest almost a consciousness mm -hmm. inside, um, which is what I then obviously came out in this kind of thing. Um, but I don't know if... No, no, that's what I wanted to do. Uh -huh. For, for a moment, in a way, they... they, they the chair is chair. alive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also later, I, later it's, it's even... Uh, it's, it's shy, kind of shyness is, is, is mentioned. Yes, so yes it, it's, it's shy, uh, it's, it's alarmed. It becomes own. something yeah. like a character for half mm. a paragraph, yeah. and then it's not anymore. So the circling would fit in with that? I'm not sure I was conscious about it with circling. I just liked it mm. as a shorter way of saying... Mm moved in a circle. I felt that the chair was actually still sort of abstract though mm -hmm. at this point because it goes around him if I remember correctly in an um, in an Kreisbewegung mm -hmm. um, so there's a sort of <coughs> abstraction about yeah. it. That it is animalized um, and it does have these impulses and shyness and temerity I had mm -hmm. um, but it is still also a chair. No. It, and it's uh, solid. It's, yeah. it's not it's, it's solid. not moving yes. it's not uh, twisting. It's 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 moving solid. Uh, yes. It's a solid object. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I yeah. wanted to keep that kind of abstraction mm -hmm. just in a circle. Mm -hmm. um, and it's um, also just one sir. I, I don't know. That's one of the things for example I wouldn't know because of uh, my my not so oh. good knowledge of English whether circling means doing it, several it could, moves it could, or could, yes. Because it's the way I pictured it it's just, it's one, just one circle. One circle. Mm -hmm. So it made a circle round him. Mm -hmm. I must admit, I did actually, into my mind, later on, came not its back legs, but its hind legs. Mm. <laughs> right. But I thought that was going mm. too far. Mm. Uh, what's the, what's the, the German word? Is the German word the same as one would use for an animal? Uh, yeah, I think so. Hinterbeine. Yeah. It could be either. Mm. Let's read on to... Let's read the last bit of, of this paragraph. So from just from where we left off. So and then all at once until the end of the paragraph. Those to three the end sentences. Of the paragraph. So. <clears throat> and then all at once another chair was there, following its every movement, spinning, skipping, listening, spinning, only a tiny bit slower, a touch clumsier and less practiced. Once it rose on its front instead of its back legs, and you could positively feel its horrified reaction to see the way it executed the following steps with, and see the way it executed the following steps with restrained uncertainty, wondering if anyone had noticed. Then it caught up with the rhythm again, and from that point on, performed it pretty well. And then suddenly a second chair was there, joining in with all the movements, spinning, 
jumping, listening, spinning, but a fraction more slowly, a touch more clumsily and less adeptly. Once it landed on its front rather than its back legs, and you could actually sense it giving a start and performing the next few figures with meek uncertainty, unsure whether anyone had noticed anything. After that, it found its rhythm again, and from that point on, it did quite well. Uh, just for the purposes of comparison. And then, at one time, was a second chair there, and took part in all movements, turn, hump, portion, turn, <laughs> but around an extreme smallness, more slowly, a trace geübt. I love the way that it, there's some words it doesn't know, so it just goes, ah, sod it, I'll just use the German word. <laughs> a trace geübt, more awkwardly, and less. Once it arose with the foremost instead of with the hind legs. There we are, there's the hind legs. And one felt formally as he frightened and the next figures with a gentle uncertainty implemented. <laughs> In the doubt whether someone had somewhat noticed, then it regained the rhythm and from then on it made it completely good. <laughs> it's sort of complete nonsense and then it's the King James Bible at the end, isn't it? <laughs> I've heard that somewhere before. Um, <laughs> Once it rose on its front instead of its back legs. Once it landed on landed, its front. Yes, I got my Aufgehen and my Aufkommen mixed up. Um, Aufgehen is landing, which is what okay. I was doing earlier on. And we have, there's a difference between, uh, you could actually sense it giving a start, and you could positively feel its horrified reaction. I think those are not the same. Because I think one of them is, is, actually, is explicitly telling you what happened as a physical movement. It actually jumps or it twitches or something. Um, Mike, you said that you have to picture things when you're doing this, right? As mm -hmm. you said with the exploding bird. You actually imagine seeing. Uh, well, I think it... Um, that giving a start, did you say, is a physical movement, it, yes. it does. But that's something you see rather than sense. sense. I mean, I, I, I think mm. I, I went for what the... The start expressed my mm. horror um, because it was to feel or to sense it rather than see it. I, mean, that's, I suspect that was going on somewhere in my mind anyway. Yes, I didn't want to read that much into it mm. at that yeah. point. Um, I just wanted to sense the physicality of the, yeah. the chair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Making some sort of gesture. Mm. I should maybe add that something about g general I wanted to do in this whole. Um, uh, whole chapter or in this whole um, passage, uh, not chapter passage, mm. um, is to start this magic sh this magic show uh, very visual, and then um, it it seems to be it seems to stay very visual, but it gets le more and more difficult to actually picture what's going on until at the end there are things going on which you cannot quite picture because they don't quite make sense to the visual mm. imagination. Mm. So um, that's of course, that's also why I actually chose this passage when I was asked to choose one because I, I thought this is really tricky. So, <laughs> and this yeah. is one of these moments when, when what is the chair actually doing gets kind of, um, conf it, it, you still can picture something but it starts to get really confusing to the visual imagination. Mm -hmm. Uh, restrained or meek? That's my question. Yeah, I think I like meek as a word. It didn't occur to me, I have to admit. Um, 
So again, I'm perhaps I'm compensating there um, and putting an emotion in yeah. where I didn't yeah. have one before. Well, uh, well, the, the sound literally didn't seem to go into English mm -hmm. as, as gentle or no. soft. So you had to look outside that, I think. Mm. Um, Just as a general question, Mike, you said that the word meek didn't occur to you there. When you're looking at each other's texts and you find things that are, that are different and possibly sometimes that may seem better or may seem less good, again, this is a slightly unfair and vague question, but how often do you see something which you think that simply hadn't occurred to me and how often is it something where you actually had a number of possibilities and you just made a different choice um, I think in this time it sort of seems to be 50-50 and um, uh, I mean I saw Zanst which means you know gentle or soft and I thought doesn't really go with uncertainty what can I think and so I was thinking back he's hesitating a bit so it was the chair he uh, is restrained <laughs> a bit. Working, that's how I came to that. And, and so meek never occurred to me. I mean, there's one or two others uh, like that. Other times, as I say, I did make notes about the things I th thought about and rejected, just in case I forgot them. And some of those are in there, not, but not all of the mm. ones you've got. I presume that... That's exactly the same, same thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, when you come across a difficult word... Um, for your first draft, you often do like um, William Weaver famously does. Um, you have six or seven words mm -hmm. um, with slashes between them, and you choose one. Yes. And different translators will, just choose by chance perhaps, choose yeah. one or the other. Yeah. What I was struck with <coughs> looking at the two side by side, we're actually going to have to stop very shortly, so uh, start thinking of questions or uh, objections or anything you'd like to share with us. Um, one thing which struck me, though, looking at the two of them side by side, is even though there are some cases where uh, the differences are quite striking, I don't think that, by and large, one could take one of those, one of Mike's choices out and put it in uh, Sean's text. I don't think just because uh, the and happens to work very well in one of your sentences that you could simply take it out and put it into one of Mike's sentences. Because, in fact, I think, I mean, both of these, I did read quite a lot of these out loud myself, and both of them read very well out loud. But that doesn't mean, I think, that there are any bits of them that are interchangeable. I think they're very, they're very unified. There are some things you might change. You might think, actually, that word simply hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time, I think they actually, there, there is a kind of unity about, about each of them which works very well. Um, yes, well, I think Sean said earlier on that if you change something, you have to look at the bits around it mm. to see that it fits in, and I think that was uh, the case there. I'm trying to think of something really awkward to end with. Tissues. Thank you. Well, yes, uh, tissues I'll, and handkerchiefs. Can um, I confess one thing then? Go on. One thing that I wish I had thought of, it didn't occur to me, was the, the woman gave him a ro re reproachful stare, I think, and... She glared at him. She did. It's much better. Just okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I was quite pleased. Thank you. Top of page 16, then. Uh, Mike, would you read the first three sentences of that page, please? Um, I mean, Van Roder turned to us? Uh, page 16. Uh, then I did cough oh, after all. Sorry. Six, 16. 16. Sorry. Oh. <clears throat> Then I did cough after all. The woman with the dog gave me a reproachful look. My hands were trembling. I pressed them down as hard as I could on the arms of my seat. 
Then I coughed, and then I coughed after all. The woman with the dog glared at me. My hands were trembling. I pressed them down on the arms of the chair as firmly as I could. Uh, one more sentence, Mike. <clears throat> now he was holding up a packet of paper handkerchiefs. Blancy, the kind you can buy in the supermarket. Just that one, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, now he took out a pack of paper tissues, Blancy brand, the kind you get in the supermarket. Thank you. We've, we've lost an italic, by the way. Blancy was italic once upon a time. Um, paper handkerchiefs and paper tissues. I'm assuming that you are both thinking of the same thing. That, that it's yes. not that one of you actually thinks, uh, is imagining a different object. No. But uh, you, have, no. you have different words for the same thing, which you get in a little plastic. Well, I have to confess that I am very anti-paper handkerchiefs or paper tissues. I always have... The real ones. Real ones. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what you'd call them because I oh. avoid using a phrase. But no, you're not so anti them that you actually insist on... I'm sorry, he's going to have to use a handkerchief. <laughs> environmentally, this is absolutely an appropriate lesson to be teaching our children. Oh, well, I, I accept um, the people who know about these things, yes. <laughs> I th well, I think, that, I think some people use one, some people use the other, right? I don't think one of them is... However... I use tissues for a reason. Ah. I use tissues for a reason because the word comes back again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. comes back in the context of the tissue and the table. Mm -hmm. And I like the simplicity of that. Mm -hmm. um, I imagined, again, a, a child's drawing of a table mm -hmm. and a simple square of the tissue. And you have the tissue in front of the table and the table behind the tissue. Mm -hmm. And you've got mm -hmm. a very pleasing alliteration there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I nearly did take your advice and change it to desk. <laughs> but I found that the desk mm -hmm. was too complicated, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. whereas the table was very, very simple. It's funny you say that because I remember that it bothered me when I wrote this in German, uh, when, uh, when I wrote the original, that Taschentuch is kind of a clumsy word to come back again and again. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see any other way to do mm -hmm. it because if I had said just Tuch, it would have been confusing to the mm -hmm. Tuch yet before. To the mm -hmm. cloth, yeah. so um, so that actually bothered me. So because in, in I mean when I wrote it in German, so if we had such an elegant word as tissue for that, I would have used it. <laughs> but we don't. It's so Clean polite, isn't it? <laughs> it's actually gone ten past twelve, so I feel I should. Uh, even though you might have noticed we haven't finished, um, I should allow you to uh, contribute to make suggestions to ask questions. Um, though, do we have microphones? We have microphones, fantastic. So uh, I'm going to stop talking and let you do some work. So please just wave a hand if you have something to say. The rule in these, uh, in these situations is always if you don't ask, ask questions, we will ask you questions <laughs> if you need an incentive. Yes, Mike. Okay. I'm Mike Ziervogel, the publisher of Pyrene Press, and thank you, that was absolutely fascinating and funny <laughs> and entertaining. Now, one thing struck me, it's, uh, I find it really quite challenging uh, for all of you to do the sentence by sentence, because what I do as an editor is to look at the flow of the text. So I never really, even German is my own language, so when I publish translations from German, of course, I can go back, and I do go back to the German text. But um, I try not to, because what matters to me is the flow of the English. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's handkerchief or tissue. 
if it makes sense in the English. Um, so what I wanted to know from the both, uh, two translators is, um, do you print it out and read it on paper? Because I think that really helps for the flow. Or do you work just uh, um, on screen? Thank you. Mike? <clears throat> well, in general, I've only read things aloud right through is when I've translated stage, you know, where it has to be spoken. So I translate a play or a monologue. I do try to read it to myself so that I hear it inside my head. So I do, I do seem to pick up quite a lot of these um, echoes or rhymes that you don't want and things like that. But I do it by, I say, hoping that I'm hearing it inside my head rather than getting a sore throat from <laughs> reading hundreds of pages out loud. Uh, I think it's vital, if, if you can, um, to set aside the time to print it out and to read it out loud from the page and not on the screen. Um, time constraints yeah. don't always mean that's mm -hmm. possible, particularly if you have a very, very long book, if you have 220,000 yeah. words. Um, that's going to take a while. Um, but if you can, certainly it makes a huge difference. And you are much more at home with your text, I think, once you've done that. Um. Daniel, do you as a writer, yeah. do, you, do you read aloud? No, I don't. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about uh, the, 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 the things you feel, the, 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 the repetitions you, you only hear when you read them aloud, um, I think it depends on how the how the imagination works towards words. I, I, I well, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I always notice Im uh, repetition and sometimes I, I notice it later, but um, when I notice it, I notice it when in, in, in the writing process. Without do you, do you it hear it in your head when you're I hear it in my head and what reading. I actually mm. do is I print it out and uh, retype it. Uh, I, uh, I, I have typed uh, the whole of measuring the world, I think, six or seven times, so uh, I don't read it loud. Actually, that kind of, of that, that's, that's part of the rewriting for me, which is actually, uh, that's, part, that's the blissful part of work, <laughs> because there I have something to work from, and by, by typing it, uh, by, by writing it all new into the computer, every sentence is kind of put under question, put in, in, in uh, is, is kind of, put under the question, is this really necessary again? More uh, radical than if you just do correcting on, on uh, paper. So uh, that's what I do, but I, I never read loud in the, in the process. I, I do find that sometimes when you're reading aloud, you actually get taken up by the sounds you're producing mm -hmm. at the moment. That, you know, sometimes find I concentrate that I do find I think I hear, hear these things I mean, I, inside my head. It's also a question of how you, how, how you what work. kind of reader you are. I feel I'm, I'm too much. I come from an, from a family of, of, of actors, and I think if I, if I, if I want to, I can, I can read quite well. Uh, so my problem is I can actually make a text. Um, you can, you can fake sound better. Sound yeah. better. I can, I can make a text better by, by, by reading it loud. And I would do that also if I'm alone in the room. So mm -hmm. I'm actually less. The, 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 it's, 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 it's less you. It's yet. It's less good for mm -hmm. for really yeah. looking at it with a critical eye if I read aloud. Thank you. Certainly, the alternating between having it on the screen, 
printing it out, reading it on the page, and going back to the screen and back to yeah. the page, I think is important part yes, of the process. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to say. But I love that part of the work. That the hard part of writing is actually when you don't have anything, when you have the blank no, page, the famous <laughs> blank page or the famous yeah. blank screen. Yeah. So first draft is agony. The rest, <laughs> is, rest is fun. <laughs> Thank you. Questions? Question for Mike and Sean. Um, Daniel said that both of your translations had a real unity, each one's, like, that they weren't interchangeable. And I was just thinking that I know some translators do work, collaborate with other translators, maybe on a large text, to, you know, to, they do a collaborative translation, two translators working together. And I was just wondering whether either of you had had that experience. Because like, for me, my experience of translation, it's very personal and that like, you can get very strong, mm -hmm. feel strongly about how you want mm -hmm. a certain bit to be. I was just wondering whether either of you had ever worked on collaborative translation, yeah, and yeah. would you, and how would you yeah. feel? Thank you. Uh, I once collaborated with a, a colleague on translation. Um, it was partly I was still teaching at the time, so that time was uh, more limited. Also, it was a book which was full of jokes, allusions, hidden allusions, hidden songs, songs. And I had a colleague with whom I uh, quite often wrote jokey things together, and we were on the same kind of uh, wavelength. And so I suggested we did it together. It was the autobiography of a, somebody who was the best-known fashion photographer, I think in the kind of 50s and 60s, called Blumenfeld. And, um, it, uh, but what we did was we split it up, and I did this bit and he did that bit, Brian did that bit. We then swapped them round and put in suggestions, comments, etc. went back um, and then put them together. And then he said, well, it's really your thing. You can <laughs> go over the thing for the final editing. But that was because that was a, a colleague and a friend and we were on the same wavelength. Uh, doing it with somebody else... It's quite a difficult process, I think. I think so, yes. Um, apart from uh, workshop translations, obviously, which mm -hmm. are a collaborative yeah. thing, um, I think you do put some of your personality into a translation, and I think that makes you rather protective of it, mm -hmm. really. Oh, yes. um, perhaps this is an old-fashioned view, but I would be rather protective of things that I've translated, um, mm -hmm. even to the point of you know disagreeing with editors and so on. You know, this is mine even though it's also the authors, of course. Well, one would think that, that precisely the exercise we're doing now does suggest that there are very particular fingerprints that you put on a, a translation, just the same way that a writer puts fingerprints on their own text, with the kind of words you personally happen to like, um, and the kind of decisions you happen to make. Yes? I was wondering what the two translators think about a collaboration between native speakers of each of the two languages, so... In, in this case, a German native speaker and an English native yeah. speaker working together on the same text. Um, yeah, well, I'm only done it to the extent of asking individual questions. Um, I mean, there is a, a translating from French, uh, a, a huge novel at the moment now. We have a neighbour, in fact, it's a French-English couple, and they spend the summer with us and the winters in Paris. And she, as an ex-academic, is very keen to discuss things. Um, and my French is slightly more rusty than my German. So I do ask her a lot of things. 
but she, she taught French language and she also worked on the Collins Dictionary. And she in, insists she is a language person. So I can discuss the meaning, what does this, this mean to you? And eventually she will say, but you're the translator, you have to decide. Which is what I like, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, Antonia. Um, Daniel Kaleman, you mentioned that you read the first draft of Carol Brown Janeway's translation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your input is, what you suggest to her, and whether she always goes for your suggestions? Um, yeah, um, it's, it's difficult to put it in... in, in uh, general terms, it's uh, some. It's 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 always very very concrete. It's always I find something and say, well, this doesn't quite. I, I think that doesn't quite capture the meaning of what I wanted to say. Um, some we have sometimes in like for for one for for book, there are two or three uh, or maybe four instances where I really feel. The meaning of a sentence uh, is, is was uh, she understood the meaning of a sentence uh, wrong, and then I tell her, and there I'm usually usually right. It's, it's never uh, there's never any kind of conflict or uh, discussion uh, or long discussion about this. And then sometimes, um, mostly, I some, sometimes I feel like it's slightly not what I wanted to say. And then we have two possibilities. One is that she'll say. Um, yeah, I think. Let me see how I can how I can get that closer to what you had in mind. Uh, or the other is that it turns out, and, and she explains that to me that I didn't get the English phrase right. Uh, <laughs> no, in the forty other languages, I don't do anything. <laughs> I mean, uh, the only the, the only other language where I can <laughs> where I can uh, read the translation is French. But even there, uh, my knowledge of the of French is not good enough that I would ever be able to 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 find a mistake. I had this uh, I had this experience with the French translation of uh, me and Kaminsky. Uh, that was my first novel to be translated into French, and uh, it's supposed to be a, a comic novel, a funny novel in 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 German. And it turned when I looked at the French translation, I'd never met a translator. She had never asked me a question. I haven't met her to this day. When I looked at the novel, to me it looked fine because I could I could understand that um, that all the sentences were there and they meant about the same thing as in the German version. But then it turned out absolutely nobody real in, who, who read it who read the French translation saw that it was supposed to be a comic novel. I'm not saying whether the <laughs> jokes worked or didn't work. I'm saying it it didn't even come across that it was supposed to be funny. And it's very interesting because still the meaning was completely intact. It was just, it was as, 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 it, as can happen in French, it was very formal, very elegant, formal uh, writing that just, although to me it seemed perfectly okay, just lost all the, the, all the fun. And, and uh, so, um, so for the next book, which was Measuring the World, uh, because also the publishing house saw that it wasn't just it, just, it wasn't just something that that, that that had occurred to me by uh, speaking to to French readers. 
so for the next novel, I got a new translator, um, which, I'm, I'm, which has always has a lot of questions for me, and we've become good friends now, and we work together very well, although still I could not judge the nuances of, of, of her French um, writing. Um, and yeah, as I said, with, with all the other languages, of course, there's, no, there's nothing I can do. I mean, I have things, uh, things have happened like uh, I got the... Um, I got the Catalan translation of, of Measuring the World. And uh, for, for those who don't know the book, I have to, to, to say that one of the things I try um, in, in Measuring the World in, 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 in the German original is that there are no direct, no direct di speech, speeches, there's no dialogue. All the dialogue is set into indirect speech which in German works very well. In English, it's a huge problem for the translator because you can do it, but the, 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 the indirect speech in English works different. You can do it quite well in French. So it's always a discussion with the translators of what to do to the indirect speech. And it's an aspect of the novel that's diff very difficult to, to translate. But so I got the Catalan translation, and of course I don't speak any Catalan, or I don't, but I looked at it and I, th I thought, I, don't, I really don't understand this language, but this is, I mean, this is dialogue. This is just direct speech. <laughs> Characters talking to each other in dialogue for pages and pages. <laughs> so I, uh, I wrote to my German publisher and they wrote to, to the Catalan publisher and said, is it possible that you turned all the indirect speech into dialogue? And then they wrote back, yeah, yeah you know, um, and actually Spanish as, and, and also Catalan, they, have, they, they can do indirect speech. It works, it works well in Spanish. So, but they wrote back, yeah, you know, it sounded weird in Catalan. <laughs> but the whole point was that it sounds weird in German. <laughs> so uh, also the freedom of the translator and also just the, the, the uh, emphasis on the, the good flaw, also that can go too far sometimes. Mm. But with most, most translations, I have no idea what they do. I, I get these Asian translations who look so beautiful and... I have no idea what, if, 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 if the humor can get lost in a French translation, I have no idea what they did to, to my humorous passages in Korean. I have no idea. It's better I don't know. Do you have any Korean speakers here who could maybe audition a translator for us? Um, let's have one more quick question. Uh, yes. Following on from that, that's really a question for Mike and Sean. I mean, Daniel was talking about having his close connection with Carol and various other translators. What, I mean, what a, have you a, been working with the writers of the books that you translate? And if so, what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages? And can I add one thing to that, which is, and did you contact Daniel about this passage? Um, because they both had Daniel's email address, so that if they wanted to ask him, they could ask him things. Um, I did, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I asked Daniel a couple of questions and then didn't actually take his advice. Um, because you suggested that the table was actually a desk. I but it wasn't... It wasn't a strong suggestion. Okay. It was just, you asked me about, is table or desk better? And I thought, hmm... What exactly is the difference? And then I thought, May desk sounds good to me. 
And that's what I wrote back to you. So I'm not really, I, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't a really strong suggestion. No. Um, <laughs> and you also asked me about Blanzi, whether yeah, that where, was where a real Blanzi brand or from? not. Yeah, it's just an invented, mm -hmm. I, I, I think, all, I think I'm, we are surrounded by the most stupid brand names. And I feel really bothered by this totally un, uh, 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 unbearably stupid brand names we have to deal with all the time. So I like to invent them in my... <laughs> In my books, it feels I can kind of strike back there. It's a <laughs> personal thing. <laughs> um, but in answer to your question, sometimes um, a writer will have a very strong idea about how their voice should be um, translated into English. And sometimes they haven't quite understood that their voice may sound, for example, a little shrill in English, <laughs> more shrill than they intended. Um, and. I, as a translator, would sometimes try and tone that down slightly, and then it can happen that the author will disagree, and then you have a battle on your hands. But sometimes, some of my authors are themselves translators, and um, some of them also have the most fantastic English, particularly Dutch writers, and collaboration is wonderful, actually, with those. Um, you learn a huge amount. I think everybody learns a huge amount. Um, so there can be fruitful collaborations and less than fruitful collaborations, I think. And some of your authors are dead. That's great, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Every translator's dream. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm not Carol. I'm sure Carol's delighted. <laughs> no, no, I, I just want to add that I, I think the collaboration the, the can work if you realize as the author that in this process the translator is the native speaker, mm. so it's mm. kind of the translator is the one who decides. So when Carol tells me, when I tell, I'm telling her, I don't think this is quite right, and she tells me you didn't get the English right, it actually is, then I trust her. Mm. And I think it's, it's, it's not just because I trust her, it's also because this is a methodic, uh, methodic question. At this point of the collaboration, uh, it's actually the translator who makes that decision. Mm -hmm. So if you because if other people like that happened in French t to me tell you that this is a terrible translation, then it's good to have a different translator with your next book. But in the if in the process of the of translation, it has to be the translator who has the, 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 the last decision. Like when you're writing for a movie, it has to be the director who has mm -hmm. the last decision. It's just, um, I mean, it's, of course it's different if, if you as the writer are uh, bilingual. But as long as you're not, then there, then you shouldn't. Then, of course, you sh can enter into a discussion, but you're not the expert. Um, I'm sorry to say uh, we have run out of time. Um, thank you very much for being here for your questions. Uh, I will ask you to thank the people I'm on the panel with, uh, uh, our novelists, but especially our two translators, unusually, um, who have been asked to do something which. Uh, in, in the interest of getting you to think about when you're reading a translation, what its relation is to the translator and to the original text, we, we asked these two people to do something which I think is both very difficult uh, in the sense that they're articulating something which we normally do, I think, quite instinctively a lot of the time, but also, I think, rather brave. Um, even though this isn't quite as gladiatorial as it might have sounded in the description in the program, nonetheless, uh, I don't know how many of you uh, do the kind of jobs where you would like to do it with 100 people watching um, and picking holes in it. Uh, so please join me in thanking Daniel Kilman, but especially Sean Whiteside and Mike Mitchell. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. 
For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.